ahead and turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. That's where we're going to be. We, uh, we've been in this letter now for almost five months, and we're hitting the home stretch this morning. This morning we hit a section that will carry Paul all the way to the end of the letter. It's the most personal section in the letter. And in fact, somebody said, uh, somebody described reading this chapter and, and a couple of chapters after it, like listening to one side of a phone call. And I think that works pretty well, actually. It's a lot like listening to one side of a phone call. Some of you are annoyed by that, right? In the days of cell phones where people are talking loudly while on public transportation or walking next to you on the sidewalk or even sitting next to you in your classrooms. Some of us are annoyed by that. Some of you who are a little more, uh, shall we say, uh, curious we'll say nosy, we'll say curious, maybe you enjoy the chance to eavesdrop a little bit, try to figure out how to piece together what that conversation is all about. If that's you, then you know from experience that it can be frustrating to only be getting half the story. Leave some gaps in place. You have to sort of import a lot based on what you are hearing and to, to sort of make sense of what they're responding to. And we have to do a little bit of that in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul is it's quoting from things that have been said about him by a group of teachers who have come into this new church, this fledgling church that he founded, and have been trying to undermine him in his ministry, to try to chop away whatever confidence his friends had in him, and to try to put themselves up on a pedestal in his place. So Paul's writing this letter to, to push back on the false claims these guys have made about him, and he's quoting them every now and then, but even where he's not quoting them, he's responding to them throughout this whole section. So what we've got to do, our challenge in the next chapters to come, is to try to figure out why is Paul saying the things that he is? What do, we, what, do we need to, what do we need to recognize about this context that helps us make some sense out of what he's saying, and then there, therefore help us to make some sense out of how we can use what he's saying in our lives, even if our context is different from his. Paul, in this chapter, is replying directly to things that had been said by these teachers who wanted to cut his legs out from under him. And that's put him in a really awkward position. Because what Paul's got to do is sort of talk himself up. In responding to these claims that have been made about him by these false teachers, he's got to, to toot his own horn a little bit. And what you're going to notice when we read through this chapter is that sometimes he's pretty sharply ironic. I don't know the dictionary definition of snarky, but I, I think I'm pretty sure Paul's being intentionally snarky in this chapter. And the reason he's not detached, the reason he's passionate about this, this, this case he's trying to make for his own ministry, the reason he's even using irony and sarcasm to try to make his point is that he knows that their faith, the integrity of their faith, of what they believe in, of what they believe to be true about Jesus and of what it looks like to follow Jesus depends on them getting the truth right about him. Because these false teachers had been giving them a false version of Christianity. They had put themselves on a pedestal saying, be more like us, follow in our footsteps. And what they were modeling was a counterfeit version of what Jesus really came to establish what Paul is, the reason Paul's fighting for his own reputation is not out of some sort of power trip, not because he's an egomaniacal person. It, it's because he knows he needs them to see that he represents what genuine Christianity looks like. And what I want you to notice about this is we walk through chapter 10. We're going to cover the whole chapter today. We won't be able to pick apart every, every single verse, but I think the themes will come through pretty clear. What I want you to notice about it is that Paul, when he defends himself, 
only wants to talk about God. The most important thing to notice about him are truths about God that show up in his life. It's like if somebody uh, wanted to compliment you on their hair. So it's like hypothetically speaking. Somebody wanted to compliment you on, on your hair and all you want to do is talk about the hairdresser. Or somebody compliments you on a meal that you've just served them, but the only thing you're interested in talking to them about is the recipe source that you, where, where you found it or, the, or the, the restaurant where you bought the takeout. The, the, the thing about you that they're noticing, you want them to notice someone else in what they see about you. I think what you're going to see is Paul, point by point by point, is talking about himself, sort of, but he's only ever trying to deflect attention to the God whose power shows up in his life. So what I want us to look for as we walk through this chapter is what it looks like to live a God-centered life. I want you to think about what do you want your life to be known for? Every single one of us is posturing all the time, sometimes in healthy ways and sometimes in unhealthy ways. All of us are projecting images of ourselves to others. What do you want your life to be known for? What can we learn from Paul and his commendation of his own life that might help us answer that question in a way that honors God rather than steals his glory from him? Those are the questions we want us to get, I want us to get into this morning. I want to begin by just reading this entire chapter. So, I hope you're feeling well rested. I'm going to invite you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I read 2 Corinthians chapter 10. This is the word of the Lord. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I'm away. That's a quote from these guys who are accusing him of being two-faced. I beg of you that when I'm present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And and we take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Look at what's before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ's, Let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I don't want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. For they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do. When present, not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. When they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God's assigned to us to reach even to you. For we're not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you, for we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. 
We don't boast beyond the limit, beyond limit in the labors of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged, so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. This is a chapter in which Paul breaks down what he wants to be known for. And what he says is a model, not just for his friends in Corinth, but a model for us too. And what he wants to be known for is God-centered all the way down. I want to pull out four different things from this chapter that Paul wants to be known for, that if, if we're to follow him in a God-centered life, we'll want to be known for as, a, as well. Here's the first one. The first thing Paul wants to be known for, he wants to be known for depending on God's power. And that comes through in the first four verses. This is where Paul's appealing to them as gently and carefully as he can to change their minds about him. He's worried for them. He's worried that they might be led astray and might end up losing their faith altogether. And we've already said behind this appeal, there's some charges, some people made against him, some teachers who'd come in trying to, trying to, to chop him down to size. It's clear that one of the things they'd been criticizing him for uh, was how he treated people. You know, he treated people with gentleness when he was with them. He says here, with, with the meekness modeled on Jesus, he was trying to care for them, to cultivate them like a shepherd, his sheep, with love and tenderness and affection and patience. These teachers have come in behind him and mistaken, as one writer put it, they've mistaken his meekness for weakness. They think of him as someone who's got no backbone, someone who's not impressive at all. So they look at his physical appearance and they think, does that guy even work out? They listen to his way of speaking. It's almost like he'd never taken any rhetoric classes. They look at the freshness of his ideas and they smell past date. And this meant to them that he couldn't cut it. He wasn't worth following. The key sentence, I think, is in verse 2. Paul, says, Paul refers to those who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. I think what he means in that phrase, these guys who've come in after him, they think that Paul is trying to win the same game they're playing. They think he's trying to meet standards set by human expectations according to the flesh. They suspect them not of walking in sin. Sometimes that phrase can mean, it would be just a reference to sin, but here that doesn't fit the context. It's according to human standards, what's merely human. They think Paul is running the same race they are. And so they're looking at him based on their standards and he just doesn't measure up. And Paul's like, I get it. I don't measure up to your standards. I don't care about your standards. He's not walking according to the flesh at all. He says in verse 3, yeah, of course, I do walk in the flesh. I am human, after all. He's talked about having a body that's wasting away, waiting on it to be renewed. He doesn't deny that he's a jar of clay, that there's nothing impressive to see. What he denies is that appearances matter to him. What he wants them to recognize is that even though we walk in the flesh, in human bodies that can be seen and evaluated, we are not waging war according to the flesh. We have other standards 
We have other weapons. In fact, he says in verse 4, the weapons of our warfare, what we're using in our fight, they're not of the flesh. They're not merely human. They're not merely things like intellect or persuasive power, physical bodies that look great. Our weapons are not of the flesh. Our weapons have divine power. Our weapons show up when strongholds go down. What he's referring to here, I think, in this weapons of warfare language is something he's mentioned in, other, in his first letter to them. He said at the time, I didn't come to you with lofty arguments, persuasive power, rhetoric that you're looking for. I came to you resolved I would know one thing and one thing only. This is 1 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2. Christ and him crucified. We preach, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1, we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. Nobody's looking for that message. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, to those whom God's power reaches, this message, Christ crucified, is the power of God and the wisdom of God. When Paul refers to weapons of warfare that have divine power to destroy strongholds, he's saying, I came with one thing only. I came with the word of truth, with the gospel, the good news, that people who deserve to die don't have to. That people who deserve to be banished from the one source of all good and hope and beauty in this world get to know that source intimately, personally, forever. I came with the word of the cross. It's foolishness to most anyone everywhere. That message, friends, if you're not familiar with it, is that the God who made you, the God whose existence you've denied on every day that you've ever lived, the God against whom you've made war, even if you don't recognize it, that same God has come to you. Though he's existed from all of eternity in a place where bodies uh, are, are, are not necessary, are not existent, though he exists just by his own nature, he decided to take on the frail killable body just like ours he took on that body specifically so that he could be killed because your sin against God does deserve death the message of the cross is that Jesus the God against whom you'd sinned the God against whom you would wage war has made peace with you by his death on the cross so that all you have to do is lay down your arms All you have to do is accept a goodness and a life that's not yours on your own. That's the message that Paul brought and he's been destroying strongholds with it, just watching God do his work. Now, let me put a point on all this. Why is he going here? Why is he going down this line saying, they think that we're walking according to the flesh. We're in the flesh, but not according to the flesh. We have not waged war according to the flesh, but... But, but our weapons have divine power. Why is he making this case? It's to show them he doesn't want to be known for his own power at all. He only wants to be known for the power of God working through God's weapons, weapons that God put in his hands, weapons that God will empower through him. He said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we have this treasure in jars of clay. I'm a jar of clay, frail, unremarkable, kind of plain destined for destruction 
But inside this jar of clay, a jar I'm not even going to try to cover up with some sort of pretty veneer, inside this ugly, common jar of clay, there is a precious treasure that you need to know about. And the reason we have this treasure in jars of clay, he says in 2 Corinthians 4, is to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. 2 Corinthians 4, 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay precisely to show that the power belongs to God and not to us. He's going to say the same thing in chapter 12. He says, he recalls a time when God spoke to him and said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So was Paul's response to God's word to him? Therefore, I'm going to boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. What do I want you to know about me? I have nothing. But look at what God's power is doing through me. I want to be known for depending on his power. That's what Paul's saying in these first four verses. Friends, it's one of the main reasons we do things the way that we do in our church. We want people to ask, how is it that people keep coming to this church? What are they doing? People keep showing up. I mean, they just, they just sing some songs and they pray prayers, they read from the Bible. Some guy gets up and talks in a mediocre way for half an hour, 40 minutes. People keep coming back, though. And the more I get to know them, the more I realize, oh, their lives are actually changing. They're not perfect, that's for sure. But they're actually not ashamed to admit it. And when they admit it, their friends still love them. And then their friends help them grow. That's happening. Why? How? And we want to be able to answer anything you see here that's any good at all has been done by God's power. That's all we've got. We're putting it all on him. We haven't cracked any codes. We haven't mastered some direct path to relevance. Not many of us are cool. Not many of us wealthy. Not many powerful in rhetoric or persuasion. Anything good you see here just points back to the power of the one who said, if we trusted him and his word, he would actually bring about great things. It's true for our own lives too, not just for our church. We want to live lives that are visibly dependent on God's power, that highlight God's power for anybody who's watching. Does your life depend on him in a way that would make others wonder? Paul wants to be known first for depending on God's power. Here's the second thing he wants to be known for. He wants to be known for pursuing God's purpose. This comes out in verses five and six. Here he points to what his life is for and to why ultimately he's so dependent on God's power and not his own because his life is for something that he could never do. Here's what God is doing through the word and through Paul's life as a bringer of that word to other people. Destroying arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. That's what he's doing through the word of the cross. The truth about what God has done through Jesus goes up against all sorts of other arguments, all sorts of other opinions about what is true, arguments and opinions that are, that are based on ignorance of what God is like, that assume that he isn't there or that he isn't loving or that we aren't broken and past saving on our own. There's all sorts of other opinions about what humans are like out there, about what's wrong with us and what it would take to help us get better. 
There's all sorts of opinions about where we come from and what our lives should be for and what good and truth and beauty really is. There's all sorts of views out there and Paul is going at them one by one by one wherever they come at him. And he's taking this word of the cross which tells us truth about who God is and what his love is like and what his expectations are and what he's done to make us worthy even when we aren't. And he's going at these arguments that are against the knowledge of God. That's what his life is for. Using the message of the cross to fight lies about God and his love and our need for him. The same idea comes out in the next phrase in verse 5. So he's, he's going up against lofty opinions raised against the knowledge of God. And he's also trying to take every thought captive to obey Christ. So everywhere he sees an idea, everywhere he sees a thought in any of his friends, he's trying to make sure they bring those thoughts to heal. That those thoughts reflect true things about Jesus and his love and his forgiveness and not lies about who we are and what we need. He wants to grab every one of these thoughts and he wants to bring it into line. You can just imagine our thought, you can imagine it because we all experienced it. Imagine your thoughts just running wild. These thought loops that we get ourselves into are these black holes, these spirals. Think, pick a metaphor. The churning in your mind. Imagine them running wild without guidance or without accountability, without any tie back to things that are true. Imagine those thoughts as violent attackers, as active agents, as enemies of what's true and right. Paul wants those enemies captured, subdued, conquered, brought into line. So he's already said in this letter that that his purpose for his life is attached to God's purpose in the world, and that is to make peace. God wants reconciliation. What reconciliation will look like in our lives in practice is when we live in light of what he's done in Jesus. When we start to experience true peace. And where that shows up is in how we interpret our lives. How we interpret what's happening to us, what we're facing. When our outlook or interpretation of the world around us flows through the truth of the gospel, all of us are interpreters, right? Sometimes we, we forget that or we, we don't pay close attention to it and we think we're just seeing what is. We think facts come into our mind and stay as they are. And maybe other people have problems seeing things clearly, but, but, but we just see what is. When in reality, every single one of us is interpreting all the time. We apply filters and lenses to everything that happens to us. And oftentimes, I mean all the time, our filters are off. They need to be recalibrated. We need to interpret using different principles. And that's what Paul's talking about. His battle, his purpose for his life is to use the word of the cross, the gospel, to try to take every other thought captive and bring it to heal so that it matches what God has already done. It should be our purpose too, both in our lives and in the way we care for each other. We want to help one another bring thoughts into captivity to Jesus and his cross. So we've got to always interrogate our thoughts. We've got to ask questions of them. We've got to ask of our fearful thoughts, of our anxieties about the future. Are are these fears consistent with trust in God as a father? A father who would even give up what's most precious to him, the life of his only begotten son, to save me from the mess I'd made of my life. If God would do that, 
what am I afraid of? And constantly pushing back, asking questions of our fears. Or, or take the subject of the, the last couple of weeks, our bank accounts. The last couple of chapters in 2 Corinthians were about money. Paul encouraging his friends to give money to this, this cause that he was trying to represent everywhere he went. These needy Christians back in Jerusalem, he wanted to be sending money back to, to help them make ends meet. So Paul's been calling them to give of their own money because they had plenty to help those people who had needs. So we've been talking about the fact that, that nothing, including the, some of our most private details of our lives, like how we spend our money and what we do with it, are off limits for those who are in Christ. From him and what he's done and what, what his love for us means for how we love each other. So, so you get an unexpected infusion of cash. Sometimes that happens. What are you going to do with it? Is your reasoning about that money playing out in the light of Jesus? Who for your sake became poor so that through his poverty you might become rich? That's 2 Corinthians chapter 8. That's Paul doing what he says he's going to do here. Taking every thought captive. Oh, you think your money's yours. <laughs> Paul says, N -n not so fast. He brings the thought to captivity to Jesus. Are my thoughts about myself consistent with what the cross says about my sin? That it is a weight so heavy, it required the Son of God to die for me, to be made clean, to be made free. Are my thoughts about the flaws of other people or even their mistreatment of me consistent with what the cross tells me about my treatment of God? about the scale of my flaws. Are my thoughts about my own shame, about the things that I've done and want out of my mind but can't scrub away, consistent with Christ's declaration from his cross, it is finished. And the promise from his resurrection that there is no sin left unpaid for those who are in Christ. You see, this is the exercise. This is what Paul's doing. This is what he wants his, his life to be known for. He's pursuing God's purpose, which is making peace. And that looks like taking our thoughts and bringing them to heal. It looks like using the divine power that's found in the gospel to reframe how we interpret everything. Here's one last example of a question that sets me up for the next point. Is what I think about others when I'm browsing their Instagram accounts consistent with God's good gifts for me in Christ? The third thing Paul wants to be known for is accepting God's assignment. And this comes out mostly in chapter, or excuse me, verses 12 to 17. There's all this stuff. I'm going uh, to point you back to a couple of examples, but just in the big picture. There's several references that he makes here to people comparing, classifying. And there's several references he makes to boasting. And several references he makes to measuring, measurements and assignments. And I want to just pull out a couple of the weeds so you can see where I'm coming from. And then I want to give you a big picture sense of what Paul's trying to say here. What he wants his life to be known for. Verses 12 and 13. I'll read those again for you. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with others. Or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. 
When they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they're without understanding. We will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us. What's he saying? What he's saying is that there's good and bad ways to measure yourself. There's good and bad ways to measure your life and what it's made of. He starts with these other teachers. And something we've seen already in this letter, it comes up again here. These other teachers were obsessed with comparing. They were constantly looking at one another, trying to size each other up to see where they fell on the scale that they'd made. They've chosen for themselves what they want to be about. They decided what counts. And now they need to size themselves up against others to know how they're doing. And it's not hard to imagine what they'd be pointing to on this scale to try to figure it out. Paul's given us lots of hints along the way in the things that he said. So they were probably pointing to, you know, how good this guy was with words. It was huge in the ancient world, in the ancient Greek world. Rhetoric was one of the most, uh, most revered professions and one of the, one of the uh, gifts that was most uh, desired and, and consumed. It was kind of entertainment back then. You know, they didn't have Netflix. So to be entertained, you'd go and listen to someone talk with fancy words that were pleasing to the ear that inspired you or, or stirred your emotions somehow. It was the entertainment of their day. So they... They were pushing back on Paul. Verse 10, he quotes them saying, his, not only is his bodily presence weak, but his speech is of no account. That was a big charge. That was hitting somebody below the belt back in that day. So they were probably saying, that guy's got an incredible way with words. They wanted people to say that about them at least. His images are so lifelike and so compelling and so moving and so creative. He's got a great smile or such a nice head of hair or whatever. Look at the results of that guy's teaching. People flock to him from all around. Look at the offerings that pour in when he's finished. People just throwing money at him. So they're measuring each other. But the standard they're using to measure themselves is one they came up with. That's not enough for Paul. It's irrelevant and foolish. He cares only about God's standards. They're measuring themselves against each other where Paul is focused on what God has measured out to him. Did you notice in verse 12, talking about measuring themselves by one another, you go to verse 13 and the English translation obscures this a little bit, but Paul is still using that same language of measuring when he starts talking about territory places that God had assigned him, authority that God had given him for his ministry. He's still using measuring language here. When he says in verse 13, I'm only going to boast with regard to the area of influence God has assigned to us, what he's basically saying is, I'm only focused on what God has given me, what God has measured out to me. I'm not focusing on how I measure out to these people who are all around me. I'm not playing their game. I'm looking straight ahead into my lane at what God has measured out to me. What God has given him, not what he hasn't. His focus is on the territory God made him responsible for in spreading the gospel. That includes Corinth, but lots of other places too. So in all of this, all these little facts that he gives in these verses about where he was going, where he wanted to go, and how he related to the Corinthians, 
what I want you to see, the point underneath there that I really want you to recognize and where we can learn from him is that Paul's not giving his life over to beating the man next to him in some sort of arbitrary race. He's not trying to meet or exceed their standards. He wants to be faithful to the thing God called him to and to the mission that God brought to his life. He's only using the authority God gave him only to do the thing God asked him to do. So what he cares about in his life is God's assignment to him, not what others have, not what had been assigned to them. He cares about God's assignment in his life, not somebody else's life, in his lane, not somebody else's lane, in his relationships, in his people, not somebody else's people. He's been, not been given to do what others have been given to do. He wants to focus on what God has given and not what he hasn't. Now, we're not apostles, but what Paul's saying here, I do think, has powerful relevance for how we view our lives. What do you want to be known for? If we follow Paul, we'll want to be known for faithfulness in what God has put in front of us, whatever God has given us. A couple weeks ago, I, I mentioned a book that I found really interesting. It came out earlier this year called The Happiness Effect. It was a sociological study of how college students are using social media and of the burden that it's become for students. And she, this author interviewed hundreds and hundreds of students across the country, lots of different places, lots of different socioeconomic levels, different kinds of campuses. They're all saying the same thing. Social media curation has become like a homework assignment. You can't not do it, but nobody enjoys it. And the author describes what social media accounts have become as the CNN of envy, 24-7 coverage of all the best parts of other people's lives. Look at what they did this weekend. Seriously, they're on vacation again? How did they become so creative and fun? I'm just trying to stumble my way to the end of another day. They're coming up with these amazing experiences. Look how happy their kids are. They're all smiling, beaming. Mine are angry at me. They're bored with me at best. All, you know, all of us are tempted to do that. This is the world we live in. This is the way we're going to be pressed on. They had their way back in Corinth. We have ours. What we need to see in Paul is that Paul's out of that game. He is not measuring himself against other people. He cares only about the measurement God has assigned to him, what God has measured out and put in his life right in front of him. So if we follow Paul, we're gonna focus more on what God has given us. He's given us maybe, and Lord willing, these children, not others. This spouse, not others. This job, this house, this body, these relationships, not others. These gospel opportunities to bear witness to him this sphere of ministry that he's put us into the middle of. We're going to focus on what he has measured out, not what he hasn't. And here's the last thing. <clears throat> what does Paul want to be known for? What should we want to be known for? We should be known for depending on God's power. We should also be known for pursuing God's purpose and for accepting God's assignment in our lives. But finally, and underneath all of these other things that we want to be known for, we should be known for resting in God's approval. That's where Paul ends this section. 
He lives a life that rests on God's power and aims at God's purpose and is content with God's assignment because really all he cares about is God's approval. Look at verse 17. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I want my life making a statement about him. For it's not the one who commends himself who's approved. Anybody can commend himself. That doesn't matter. That commendation dies with him. But the one whom the Lord commends, that's the one who's approved. That's all he cares about. Those who are comparing themselves to each other, angling for more followers or more money or better reputations, why do they do this? Why do we? They're looking for approval. They want something they can pin themselves to. Maybe more, li- more likely, they, they want a, a, something they can pin to themselves. Some sort of you know, merit badge that wraps them up that everyone will see. They're looking for approval. Some reason to love themselves. And that's a dangerous game to play. Dangerous on either end. Because sometimes you can deceive yourself into thinking you're better off than you really are. Because you've rigged the game and designed the standards to make sure that you meet them. Sometimes you're just measuring yourself to the wrong people. It's like the old joke about how, what it takes to not get eaten by a bear. You just got to be a little bit faster than the other guy who's running away. Sometimes we can skew the way we're commending ourselves and actually deceive ourselves about our deeper needs that are going unfulfilled or our deeper, our deeper flaws that desperately need to be redirected. Or more likely, this game where in which we always measure ourselves against each other, more likely we're going to end up feeling bad envying lives of others and either way whether we're feeling good in the moment about ourselves because we pick some arbitrary standard that we meet or feeling bad about ourselves because we failed to meet some arbitrary standard someone else set up either way we're insecure either way we're going to be easily toppled we're just one instagram refresh away from despair and we're never going to be able to rest These people Paul was writing against, they commended themselves, not Paul. Only one commendation matters to him. Only one source of approval is the target of his life and its engine. He wants God's approval. Friends, you were made to crave approval. It's not wrong that you want to be loved. That's natural. You weren't made to be enough on your own. The first three chapters of Genesis describe how God made everything that is. And the first chapter in particular describes his pleasure in what he made. After everything he creates, he pronounces good, good, good. Then he gets to humanity and the author tells us that after he creates man and woman in his own image at the crown of all the things that he made he says very good he's very happy he's pleased with what he's made you were made to please God you were made to want God to be pleased with you you were made in other words to crave approval to be worthy in the eyes of another that craving is not the problem, friends. The problem is that we've sought that love in all the wrong places and in all the wrong ways and there's no future there. There's no rest. 
There's only wanting and wanting and wanting. But what if, what if what you want most of all for your life is God's approval of you? If what you want most of all for your life is God's approval of you, friends, you can have it. You can have it today. You don't have to win a contest. You don't have to pass a test. You don't have to reach any arbitrary threshold for likes. All you have to do is be in Christ. All those who are in Christ are viewed in God's eyes through what he has done, not what they've done. They are viewed as Jesus is, my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. And they own a track record before God that won't ever change. In others of his letters, Paul celebrates this. Several different places. I just want to mention Romans chapter 8 because it's one of the clearest and most beautiful Paul says in Romans 8.31, what shall we say to these things? He's just summarized the gospel, the same message that I've been explaining this morning. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, if God approves of us, if God looks on us and says, worthy, then who can be against us? He who didn't spare his own son but gave him up for us all, when that's what you're known for, the power and love of this God showing up in your life, how will he not also with him get graciously give us all things? And who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. That's just a fancy word for saying God who says, worthy, approved of. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised. He's at the right hand of God right now interceding for us. You know what that means, friends? When you're in Jesus, you have an advocate right now next to the Father praying for you. Reminding his Father of what he'd done to make you clean. And he can never turn away the presence of his Son. What Jesus asks for, Jesus gets. When you are in Christ, you are worthy. And that means if what you want is approval from God, then you can know rest in your life right now. All you have to do is accept it.